We move outside our comfort zone and seek new experiences to grow. We find adventure in the epic and the everyday. We travel to broaden our horizons and engage with nature. We are most at home in remote landscapes and faraway places, but never far from our community of passionate dreamers and wanderers. We are Chaconians. Join the Chacosphere at Chacos.com. Where will your Chacos go? This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtback Diaries, a duct tape and beer production, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Patagonia. It was a kind of bright mid-March morning that foretold the coming spring, hinted at it so obviously with the sun and warming light that it was all my friends and I could do not to strip down to t-shirts right there even if it was only fifty degrees. We stood in a clearing on the banks of the Musconetcong, a small tributary in northwest New Jersey that empties into the Delaware River. In midsummer the muskie is languid and lazy, but now she ran high and fast with the runoff of snow and recent rain. Our plan? Wrap the fifteen or so miles of the muskie to her confluence with the Delaware. From there we would continue down the larger river for two nights, camping out on small islands and cooking over campfires, a la Huck Finn. The crew included me, Peter, my former housemate, and Aaron and Christy, our two dear old best friends. The four of us had taken adventures like this many times before in our trusty inflatable raft, the Fish Hunter 360, though never this early in the season, and never on such a small, fast river. We accessed the water through the backfield of the farm where Aaron and Christy were learning how to grow food. With a few easy paddle strokes, the current grabbed us. We were off. Western New Jersey is different from the New Jersey that everyone loves to make fun of. It's more like eastern Pennsylvania, with farmlands and rolling hills, forests and old towns and highways. As we floated, Remnants of centuries-old homes hove into view and then slipped behind us. Here, a crumbling stone wall. There, a lone fireplace chimney standing among the trees. The river carried us swiftly. After an hour of paddling, we'd covered roughly seven miles. Soon, we heard a faint sound of rushing water ahead of us. We pulled the raft onto the shore well upstream and marched down the bank to take a look. The dam stood six feet tall a diagonal concrete slide with water rushing over and a foot-tall standing wave on the downstream side. Despite a lot of time spent on inflatables and the fact that all of us were competent swimmers, dams were a new thing for us. I imagined our raft sliding down, hitting the standing wave, and promptly folding in half, the four of us tossed into the cold water. So when portaging around it was suggested, we all readily agreed. As we carried the raft, we found that the most direct path went straight through someone's yard. Choosing to ignore the no trespassing signs, we hurried along. We already had the raft back in the water when the homeowner happened to pull up in a truck. As he walked over to us, we prepared for a quick getaway launch. Instead, he addressed us in a friendly, level voice. You know there's a 50-foot dam up ahead, right? He asked. And right after that, it goes into Class 3 Rapids. Our eyes widened. He suggested where to portage around the dam. We thanked him profusely. Paddling away, Christy voiced what we were all thinking. 
Imagine if we hadn't known about the 50-footer. Not long after, we saw an even break in the line of the water. Beyond it, the tops of trees peeked up. We made for the left bank and carried the raft more than three stories down to the river below. We looked up at the sheer concrete fall, shaking our heads. The fish hunter went back in, and after rounding two more bends, we were thrown into the rapids. The rapid section lasted about three minutes, and it was as stiff as any water I'd ever run. We paddled as one, Peter calling out the turns, skillfully skirting us around holes, half-submerged tree limbs, and menacing boulders. When we shot past the derelict factory and back into the slower, smoothly running river, we celebrated with laughter and cheers. By this point, we were already picturing ourselves sluicing forth victoriously onto the wider Delaware below. So when we stood on a raised promontory overlooking the four-foot drop of the next dam and observing how the water flowed smoothly over, it seemed natural to hike back upstream, climb aboard, and set our nose with the current. We slid smoothly over the edge and down the algae and scum-coated concrete. With nary a splash, we plopped back into the river. Feeling pleased, we floated on, and a short while later, a one-lane steel bridge came into view. Beneath it, another dam. This dam was the smallest yet, only three or four feet tall, and the river there was narrow. Something seemed weird about the water, though. Next to the dam, a soccer ball and a basketball bobbed in a strange standing wave, sometimes getting pulled under and then popping back up. We weren't sure what to make of it, but worst case, we figured we'd be able to swim to one of the nearby banks. With a whoop and a slug of whiskey, we set forth. Though we didn't know it at the time, this fourth dam, like the two other smaller dams we'd encountered, was what's known as a low-head dam, a dam less than 10 feet tall that lacks gates or means by which to moderate the flow of water. These dams don't look especially dangerous, and in the late summer and fall they usually aren't. But during spring runoff or a flood, the increased flow of water can create a deadly phenomenon, known by safety and rescue professionals as a drowning machine. Here's a description from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Torrents of water pouring over the dam create a churning backwash or current. The roiling water takes any object, including a person, to the bottom of the stream, releases it to the surface, sucks it back to the face of the dam, and pushes it back to the bottom. This cycle can continue indefinitely. As the water flows over the dam, it becomes super aerated, which can reduce buoyancy and makes it much more difficult to swim. We didn't know any of this at the time. Upstream, we positioned our raft in the middle of the river for our descent. As we came to the edge, we all leaned back. When we reached the bottom, the current grabbed us violently, wrenching us sideways and forcing us parallel to the dam. The right side of the raft slammed against the concrete. Before I knew what was happening, I was thrown overboard. For all the roaring sound, I remember it now as quiet. Under the cold water, I was confused and disoriented. The current gnashed all around, and my clothes felt heavy. I kicked towards what I thought was the surface, but the force of the water held me down. I twisted and hung there for a moment. My eyes were closed, and it was dreamlike, almost peaceful. A thought passed through my head. 
This is what it feels like to start to drown. I kicked hard again. Maybe it was this effort plus the light vest, or maybe I just cycled through to a different part of the rolling current. But after another few seconds, I came up and gulped gratefully for air. I saw the raft next to me, and with a rush of adrenaline, I pulled myself out of the water and hung on for all I was worth as the banks, the bridge, and the horizon veered wildly. The raft slammed back into the dam, nearly throwing me out again. Ten seconds later, it lifted and hit again. We were trapped in a cycle. The great turbulence bucked the raft, and around us our scattered possessions churned in the rushing water. I heard my friends yelling to each other, and to me over the roaring sound, and I yelled back. Then Christy screamed for Peter, screamed that he'd gone in. When I looked down, I saw that Peter had been sucked beneath the boat and come up next to me, his life preservers stripped from him. He reached for the grab line and clung desperately to it. Each time the boat reared against the dam, Peter's legs bashed into the concrete. Already he looked pale and tired. I grabbed a loose life preserver and tried to fasten it around his neck, but the water dashed it away. Peter started screaming for help, and we all started calling out. I couldn't tell you how much time we spent there, yelling at the top of our lungs. Could have been three minutes, could have been ten. What has stayed with me is the feeling of how long we simmered in mounting dread before our cries attracted the attention of a work van and then a truck passing by on the bridge. I watched as a man uncoiled a yellow extension cord and lofted it toward me. He and another man on the shore held the line while I got a good grip, and then they started pulling. I braced myself and pulled back. The raft, by now half-submerged beneath us, resisted. The men heaved and almost tore me from the boat. Peter, still clinging to the grab line beneath me, looked exhausted. The second driver threw another line to Aaron and Christy, and all pulling together, we managed to muscle the sluggish raft past the invisible boundary of the hydraulic current. Once free, the river flung us downstream, swift again, as though angry at having been delayed. With my paddle, I stroked for the right bank. I couldn't see Peter anywhere. One hundred yards past the bridge, I paddled us into a tree slung low over the water. We tried to arrest our movement by grabbing onto it, but the river overpowered us and swept the raft away, leaving me hanging from the trunk, soaked but safe. I looked downstream as the raft carried on, utterly relieved to see Peter bobbing alongside. After another fifty feet, Aaron and Chrissy pulled it in to shore. We stood there looking at each other, speechless and heaving. All the river water I'd swallowed sloshed heavily in my stomach. One of the men who'd stopped to help us hurried down the grass field. You got real lucky, he told us solemnly. Aaron and Peter caught a ride with one of our rescuers back to the farm to get a car. Christy and I stood on the bridge and looked down at the hydraulic current. It seemed obvious to us now how the water next to the dam cycled and almost appeared to flow back upstream. One of our life preservers bobbed alongside the basket and soccer balls, half shredded. En route back to the farm, Peter relayed the story our rescuer had told about trying to save a kayaker who drowned at that same dam in 2000. 
On a spring float, after heavy rainfall, the 58-year-old local school teacher went over the dam and was pulled from his kayak. The force of the hydraulic currents stripped his life jacket from him. Bystanders threw him a rope, but he lost his grip and was sucked under. The man came back up disoriented, and he missed the subsequent rope throws. When the drowning machine took him under again, he didn't resurface. His body was discovered several days later, seven miles downstream on the Delaware. That night, the four of us cooked a feast and we bought a bottle of whiskey. When it came time to sleep, I lay there in my sleeping bag in the warm dark of my friend's living room, looking at the ceiling. I couldn't help but imagine how it would have been had the current not let me up, the panicking and thrashing, and then growing still. I think back on this experience, how some of the most dangerous things in life don't scream danger, about the possible outcomes that didn't happen, how they could have changed my life and the lives of my friends forever. It's startling how fast a situation can go beyond our calculated risk without us even knowing it. After this trip, I found myself behaving more cautiously. As time has passed and the memory has faded a bit, I've tilted back towards seeking the rewards associated with greater risk, with, I hope, a wiser frame of reference. I'm still very respectful of the water, always will be, I imagine, as I can remember watching Peter struggling to cling to the raft, and how it felt, that current holding me under, not letting me up. My name is Dan Gingold. This is my short. When Dan's not being extra cautious on water in his pack raft, he's either working on films in New York City, skydiving in the Northeast, or out west mountain biking, climbing, and canyoneering in the desert. The Fish Hunter lives on, and you can see it at dangingold.com. We'll post a link on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today by Dano, a single voice, John Barry, and Pela. You can find the links to the artists at our website. Most music provided courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. Support for the diaries comes from you. Thanks to the folks who have pledged to keep the diaries growing. It's an amazing feeling to know that so many of you are backing us and the stories we tell. You are a part of our family. And if you want to find out how you can be a part of that too, click on the pledge button on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Chaco is our proud sponsor of the shorts. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary by bringing back some of their favorite styles and sandals and shoes. See if your favorite made the list at chacos.com or follow them on Twitter at ChacoUSA. Support also comes from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Find them at kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly and from the good people at Patagonia. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Becca Cahal, Jen Altschul, and me, Fitz Cahal. Thanks for tuning in. Dirtbag Diaries.